Welcome to Construction Cashflow. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you deal with people with respect and honesty and clarity, then there's absolutely no reason when you need to, you know, to stop you from reminding them from time to time what your or their rights and obligations are under that contract. Somebody's taking a, a corporate stance. I think that's always important that we recognise that. You don't take things personally. You, know, you can argue till you're blue in the face with somebody and, and that meeting's over and you know you have the crack in the car park about football or whatever afterwards and I think that's really important and that's one of the things I like about the industry, the people. So the whole idea of oh, we'll leave the contract in the drawer and we'll get it out if we need to. No, it should be on your desk, it should be dirty dog-eared contract that's flicked through every day because when you pull it out of the drawer it's often too late and you can never go mm. backwards and that collaborative party that you thought was your friend can turn on you very quickly and if, if you've not been doing your bits you've nowhere to go deal with it now dealing with it might be you know negotiating a better position but don't pretend it doesn't exist because it will come back and bite you on the ass at some point and I think that's one of the, the key problems in this industry that people bury their heads in the sand wait hope that it'll never happen whatever it is it does happen and then they're in a, a blind panic again it comes back to rights and obligations understand what they are but understand them from the outset don't get excited and blinded by the prospect of a nice shiny hundred thousand pound order let's say you might get paid a hundred thousand it might cost you 150 because you've actually signed up to x y and z or you're on the hook for, you know, delay damages, contra charges, stuff that's outside of your control, but you've signed up to it because you didn't read the contract in the first instance. Standard form contracts, and I do a lot of work with, with NEC, they're drafted the way they're drafted for good reason. They're not intended to be heavily amended and it, it just creates chaos. Better communication, either orally or through the documents, will avoid a lot of the disputes. It's not cost plus, it's defined cost plus fee. The cost incurred may be defined cost, but it might be included in the fee or it might be disallowed cost. I, I know most of the areas where, where contractors will, will tuck away money there or, or, or perhaps I should say uh, drop things out and reallocate them. The concept of collaboration is framed by the contractual relationship. You look at some of the profits that some of the big organisations are posting which are eye-watering and yet at the other end, you know, there's a supply chain that, that's going out of business at a rate of knots. 
people through the supply chain. It's not to say that they don't bring some of it on themselves. In this show, we ask our guests to tell us their story. Tell us a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are today, how they develop their product, their services, their ideas. And we discuss how that can affect construction cash flow and other areas of construction. And also to give us an idea of how we might make things better and give you a few tips and ideas to take away with you. And listen to the end where you'll find out more about them, more about our guests, about what motivates them, what inspires them. And hopefully that'll inspire you too. And always don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. In this episode, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Rob Hubbard. Rob has over 30 years experience in the industry, specifically in civil engineering and major infrastructure projects. Rob has experience across many forms of contract and many forms of procurement. He has worked on client side, contractors and subcontractor side. He also is an expert on public sector procurement and working with local councils. Rob has a master's degree in construction law and dispute resolution. He's a member of the RICS and a fellow of the Chartered Institution of Civil Engineers and Surveyors. Rob is also a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and a fellow of the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transportation. He's an associate member of the Institute of Civil Engineers. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce you to Rob Hubbard. Hi Rob, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks Stu. Thanks for inviting me on to join you today. You're most welcome. So Rob, tell us your story. Tell us of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Okay, so when I was at school, all I wanted to do was was work in a bank. I, I was obsessed with with banking. Um, went and did my work experience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Went to college and did business studies. Um, got a job in a bank. Uh, got started work with Barclays, uh, where I grew up in Leicester, um, and absolutely hated it. It bored, it bored me silly. Um, it, I think it was round about the time of um, where things were moving to more of a sales environment, sort of late eighties, and I just wanted to get out, and but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So evenings and weekends, I used to work for my then girlfriend's dad as a labourer. He'd got his own scaffolding business, and um, he said to me, "Right." Um, Go and get this paper called Jacker's Journal. And I thought, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, having asked what the hell it was, I, I went and got a copy of Construction News. And um, had a look in the back pages, thought, well, this will be interesting. Yeah, I quite like construction. Um, I liked being on site. Phoned up my old 
careers teacher from school who I'd not spoken to for, for many, many years. Um, but cut a long story short, I, I ended up answering a, or seeing an advertisement for um, a contractor for Balfour Beatty Civil Engineering who just been awarded a contract in Kettering in Northamptonshire. Um, Kettering Southern Bypass, which is now part of the A14, rocked up to that and somewhat naively um, when the uh, the receptionist asked me what I did, I just blindly said, uh, I, I either want to be a civil engineer or a quantity surveyor. So she said, oh, okay, go and sit over there. <laughs> so I, I sat in a chair and, and some guy walked over to me um, and said, right, okay, I understand uh, you're looking for a job. Come on, let's go and have a chat took me to this table that had got you know a beautiful array of snacks and drinks laid out and great icebreaker he said what do you fancy i'm having a beer do you want one too <laughs> so he um he, he won me over straight away there and, and sat down um a guy called um, colin williams who was commercial manager at the time and he, he said to me look he said you don't want to be an engineer you want to be a qs like me and that's where it began that was in 1990 um they offered me a job i accepted started my career with alpha beta civil engineering um subsequently ended up working for different parts of balfour's um on two separate occasions later on in my career but then i spent 27 years working for contractors predominantly um tier ones tier twos especially subcontractors a little bit of freelancing during that time and then about five years ago i felt like i needed a change um wanted to experience what it was like on the client side so i secured a position um in a private practice, um, George Corduroy and Co. And I held the position of uh, regional director for the north of England, but managed the offices in Leeds and Manchester. Um, yeah, really enjoyable. But um, last year sometime, I started feeling that I was a little bit disengaged from the career that I've grown up in and enjoyed and developed and, and wanted to get back to the more of the doing um thinking about what i enjoy doing and, and why i enjoy doing it so uh my original intention was to resign my position take stock and join another firm that was a bit smaller that was perhaps a little bit more hands-on opportunity but very quickly literally in the space of a few days decided that probably the best thing to do was to go it alone and build up from the ground upwards on my own and that's what i did and that's where my business was born
were influenced by scaffolder, a scaffolding firm. Yeah, you know, I always yeah. find scaffolders are pretty pivotal, aren't they, in the construction process? And they don't get a lot of airing, but uh, it's always something around moving the scaffold or the scaffolding. And if you understand the lifts and different aspects of scaffolding, you're halfway there, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I always struggled when, when you got nice shiny boards because the new ones were always a lot wetter and therefore heavier. And yeah, your, exactly. And I always got sent into the middle as well. So I was, I was reaching right down and having to pump it all the way up. Yeah, you learn yeah. quickly on site, don't you, when you're on the tools? You do. I remember my first day, you mentioned in your first day, my first day, I um, it was on when they were constructing the M20 and I got a job as a chain boy and I was really thrilled I was 16 15 or 16 uh, when the guy I jumped in a bit like your guy that you know you had all the cakes on the table and he says well I'm gonna have a beer do you want one and then when I got into the they said we're gonna go in the Land Rover out to where you need to run your tape across and it was tape measures <laughs> yeah. run and dodge out the way of the caterpillars coming up and down <laughs> and the machinery you know in them days and I could wind the tape in so it didn't get run over uh, quickly but we went in the Land Rover and we were going up all these nooks and crannies and he turned around to me and said, here, do you want to have a drive? You know, and I was thrilled. <laughs> it was great fun. I was, for I was hooked. And then how I ever got in the queue for quantity surveying, um, I'm not quite sure, but that's, that's kind <laughs> of uh, what happened, you know. Um, so, no, great story. What, what do you think, uh, Rob, has, has changed, if anything, in the industry since you, you started and, you know where you kind of got to where you are now in terms of wanting to to drive something forward on your own obviously the the, the big things the, the digitization of of most processes and practices and and that ongoing drive to to digitize things um which is great you know i'm a great believer in in setting up processes and procedures to streamline what we do but I think the detriment of that is a lot of um, a lot of the knowledge seems to be lost or forgotten, and a lot of the role of the consumer now is very transactional. Mm. Um, you know, a computer says yes, or more often the computer says no, and people struggle to articulate the reasons why, or even challenge the outputs that are getting and you're only you're going to get a given output from a, a, an electronic process based on the quality of the input if that doesn't make sense you're not going to get a lot of sense going coming out the other way and it's 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 having that that knowledge that basic knowledge you know i think you spoke um on one of your earlier podcasts about being able to understand construction so you can do an effective takeoff yeah you know I, I've spent a bit of time looking at um, digital measurement and in theory it's absolutely fantastic and it cuts down the time amazingly but if it's if it's not struck if the design isn't structured in a way to enable the takeoff it's just the pretty drawing albeit in 3d and, and people struggle often to understand and accept those aspects like oh we've got a 3d bin model and it'll do everything yeah but it, 
it looks nice it doesn't do everything because it's not constructed in the right way to facilitate the other operations measurement you know does it you know work for clash detection and, and, and things like that is it fully inclusive in most cases unfortunately not um so i think yeah the role of the qs has become very transactional and um it can be challenging but that every challenge creates loads of opportunities i believe it does and, and i think more now than ever uh, particularly where you know where uh, there's more people challenging cash flow and contracts and trying to make things more collaborative within the industry it's an art and a science isn't it so you've got to be yes. able to negotiate you've got to be able to understand people and it's like taking those measurements and understanding how to package those you know for uh, procurement design uh, you know and negotiating those packages so there's so much more that goes with it than just a 3d model and i don't think people actually really understand the nuts and bolts of that you mentioned a key word there which is often misunderstood and misused and that's collaboration and, and collaboration often morphs into capitulation where one side abuses their role in the collaborative relationship. And, and I've always been a great believer but that the concept of collaboration is framed by the contractual relationship. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, if you deal with people with respect and honesty and clarity, then there's absolutely no reason when you need to, you know, to stop you from reminding them from time to time what your or their rights and obligations are under that contract. So the whole idea of, oh, we'll leave the contract in the drawer and we'll get it out if we need to. No, it should be on your desk. It should be dirty dog-eared contract that's flicked through every day that people understand. Absolutely. Because when you pull it out of the drawer, it's often too late and you can never mm -hmm. go backwards. And that collaborative party who you thought was your friend can turn on you very quickly and if if you've not been doing your bits you've nowhere to go the parties don't always understand their roles under each clause of the contract you don't see very often at pre-meetings where the parties go through each clause and say right this is how we're going to behave against each of these clauses this is the what why who or where on on mm. you know what does it mean you know for us in our relationship uh, going forward and how are we going to communicate with each other on these key which are the key clauses that we're we're going to be you know uh, we're going to be looking at on this project and it's when we don't understand that and like you say we put the contract in the drawer then it leads to disputes doesn't it you know it doesn't it does. you, you, yeah it leads to like you say it's we 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 start out thinking we know what collaboration is, but then suddenly we don't really actually understand what that is. No, and it, you should be collaborating within, you know, the constraints of that agreement. That the, you know, generally the controlling minds of the respective organisations have signed up to, and do it openly and and honestly and with integrity. There's always a workaround, and sometimes you need to be a little bit uncomfortable. But you need to accept that we can't always have it your own way you know if somebody signed up to something that that's not that favorable to them you deal with it now dealing with it might be you know negotiating a better position 
but don't pretend it doesn't exist because it will come back and bite you on the ass at some point. And I think that's one of the, the key problems in this industry that people bury their heads in the sand, wait, hope that it will never happen, whatever it is. It does happen and then they're in a, a blind panic, usually after they've sat on it for a few more months hoping it'll go away again. But yeah, you know, you've got to you've got to meet these things head on and deal with them. There's still uh, adversarial attitude generally in the industry, or do you think it's improving? I'd like to say it's improving. Some areas it is, but in all honesty, uh, I think it's pretty cutthroat out there. Survival of the fittest. The, uh, the there's some very large organisations which may also be termed as, as almost predatory. You look at some of the profits that some of the big organizations are posting, which are eye-watering. And yet at the other end, you know, there's this supply chain that, that's going out of business at a rate of knots. All too often, you know, contracting's a race to the bottom, which is completely wrong. Whilst I'm, I'm an advocate of people through the supply chain, it's not to say that they don't bring some of it on themselves some of the terms and conditions that contractors sign up to you know are absolutely ridiculous again comes back to rights and obligations understand what they are but understand them from the outset don't get excited and blinded by the prospect of a nice shiny hundred thousand pound order let's say you might get paid a hundred thousand it might cost you 150 because you've actually signed up to X, Y, and Z, or you're on the hook, delay damages, contra charges, stuff that's outside of your control, but you've signed up to it because you didn't read the contract in the first instance, or get somebody who does understand these things to read it on your behalf and make some recommendations. I like to, I like to be able to make a difference. Um, I've always been a great believer that the role of the quantity surveyor is there to add more value than the cost burden that it attracts. I've developed a method to define the services that, that my clients require because they don't always know where that value can be added. So you need to talk to people. So I call it the Lira method. It's pretty simple, but it seems to work. Not else for listening to understand the client's needs, objectives and, and outcomes. You know, what do they think the problems are? Where are they getting the, the pinch points? And then move on to the investigation, reviewing documents, personal interviews, understand how and why situations arise. And then we'll make some recommendations, which generally come out of the findings from the investigation stage and make sure those recommendations are aligned to the client's objectives and what their needs are and, and where they want to make the solution that we may have identified or mitigate. And then we take the action. So once those proposals have been agreed, we'll put them into place and deliver those outcomes. So I think it's, yeah, listening to clients and, and getting to know clients. It's surprising how often you get talking to somebody and they think they've got a problem and that can manifest itself into a whole load of others or, or even identify things that they, they didn't know 
were an issue, but everything adds benefit and value. And I focus clients and do a lot of work for local authorities, highway authorities all over the country, over England and Wales. Public sector is, is short staff, generally underfunded, and often be seen as a as an open door by by some of the larger contracting organisations. A lot of the uh, the public servants are easy targets for a bit of um, commercial bullying. The work I do for local authorities is, is protecting the public purse. It's getting better value for your money, for my money, for everybody's money. We all pay taxes. We all complain about the potholes out there or streetlights not working. I try and help them drive value through those highways contracts. And then further down the supply chain, I try and help out smaller contractors who perhaps don't have their own full-time QS or mm. owner-operators don't really have time or the knowledge to review contracts and subcontracts. How the payment um, generally with public sector organisations, you know, they always used to be notoriously long, but do you think they're looking to uh, speed that up at all in the way that they procure work these days? To be honest, Stu, that's one another one of the reasons why I like working um, for local authorities because they're, they're good payers. I generally get paid well within terms. I don't know many contractors who who don't. I suppose it depends on on circumstances really. But yeah, I I do like working in the public sector, and so you you know that your money's relatively secure as well. <laughs> they're not going to go bump overnight, which is always a risk in this industry always a risk where, where do you see the biggest risks in the industry at the moment for supply chains because there's an awful lot of suppliers particularly small suppliers that are going out of business where, where do you see their biggest biggest risk is it their side they're not they're not reading the contract they're not understanding contracts or are they they're not issuing applications on time or they're not managing their resources or is it more the other way i mean not so much public sector contracts unfair contract terms amended contracts that kind of thing i mean some some con some public sector organizations do amend contracts extensively what are you finding are they they leaning towards a particular do they have a particular set of amendments that they use does it make it fairer more collaborative or do you think they're they do pass risk down the line to be honest i find it quite variable it depends on who's been doing the drafting often local authorities will, will employ a legal firm to draft amendments to the contracts which usually puts a, a specific slant on the contracts and that they're, they're very heavily amended very complicated often contradictory because there's no sort of real practical commercial application of those contracts then the standard form contracts and i do a lot of work with with nec they're drafted the way they're drafted for good reason um they're not intended to be heavily amended and it, it just creates chaos i think that one of the biggest risks of the industry is the skill shortage i can see some of the effects of that now people aren't coming into the professions the disciplines and learning all of the skills and knowledge and because there's a shortage all the way through the levels i think people are getting promoted far too early and holding more senior positions than they've they've got the experience to match with often chasing salaries that will manifest itself in more and more dispute but yeah getting young people interested 
in in careers in in surveying and, and engineering friends need to get into to get into the junior schools rather than just the high schools and colleges make construction exciting i was absolutely buzzing when i joined the industry i just thought it was brilliant and if you can tap into people with something get them inspired i'm taking an apprentice on this summer which i'm quite excited about scary but it's something i want to do oh, that guy took me under his wing um and gave me a chance and inspired me and i've been doing it for 30 years since uh, and i i would like to be able to inspire other people in the same way through your experience and what you've done and the stories that you could tell a youngster coming into the the industry i'm sure you'll make it the apprentice will will have a great time particularly the work that you're working on you know public sector work can be so varied can't it yeah Not so much yeah. to get involved in we do we have a mix a good mixed bag of work and it, it is really interesting and i do you know i do like the the fact that no two days are the same uh, it, it's evolving and changing all of the time coming back to what you were saying about amended contracts and i know that some councils they'll go to a legal firm to amend a contract sometimes i wish they'd come to a qs first you know because they add like you mentioned you know we could add a practical side of uh, how you amend a contract if you need to amend a contract and sometimes I think when the lawyers do it it's a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut so when you hand when you hand a bricky a contract that's 300 pages long requires nine warranties you know they're going to go you know what I'll go and do the job down the road because this is too complicated for me. At the same time, you know, I think this is where your expertise come comes in as well. It would be that you could support the supply chain when when it's going out to tender. If something's been heavily amended, it gets it looks complicated. To actually sit alongside those, those contractors and and then go through and explain what it's about and support them, and actually whether it's a good fit for them as well. I think that's. Mm. Uh, that's a key a key thing that they might not realize that's it and, and sometimes you know it, the right thing to do is to walk away so first point you know, it's back to that whole concept of, of it being transactional somebody somewhere has said this is our standard form of subcontract and that will get sent out as an inquiry but if if the supply chain pushes back in a in a calm considered polite but robust manner then that that must drive change because people will have to listen and it's not yeah. always a case of, of of digging down till you get somebody will do the job contractors want quality subcontractors and the subcontractors need to stand up and say look you know this is me you want me again going back to one of your earlier podcast specialists in in their particular area the main contractor wants them to deliver the work because of quality and price need to manage that risk portfolio sometimes it's appropriate for subbies to take on board the risk a lot of the time it isn't but the payment terms don't necessarily have to be favorable to the subcontractor they always need to be fair how the hell can you expect a subcontractor to take risks for something that they've got absolutely no control over or even a, a chance to reason before seeing like the the performance of others on a project right through to its completion which might be you know 12 months down the line when they're just dropping in to do a week's work it's it's absolutely ridiculous but it comes back to transactional way of doing business where people aren't sitting down and thinking right okay we need we need this bricklayer um he's, he's going to do this piece of work 
what's the best way of getting into a relationship with him it needs to be fit for purpose one size fits all doesn't really work in contracting and i've always found it's uh, to bring the trades or contractors in as early as possible to talk to them about the project you know yeah. in advance to see what their appetite is for it and sometimes iron out any interface design issues and so they they and also it gives them the opportunity to gear up their resources they know they've got a possible project coming up you know, maybe there was there, there's some uh, quite complex brickwork involved then the the brickwork firm knows that he's got a see if his best bricklayers are available at that particular time so that they can produce the quality so they've got the right amount of skills to to match but quite often we'll go out to tender to the subcontractor could be years after the design's done and everybody else has been on site we've done the foundations and he gets he gets two weeks to put his tender together then he's expected yeah. to resource it and then then it's like oh i don't really fancy that detail there you know we can't we never done one like that before and then all of a sudden you're in a delay you're back and forward with the design team aren't you pipeline visibility and, and early involvement can never be underestimated in my opinion again it's back to effective communication isn't it talk to people it's a good point you raise it find out what the appetite of the market is because you know people like to see a pipeline if they think the opportunities are out there they're the best jobs you know that, that'll get priced aren't they and there should be more than enough to go around and if people yeah if people understand jobs they understand the scope they understand the requirements the quality etc etc and they can plan then you know we'll start to cut out some of these knock-on effects some of these delays which often then spiral out of control you know, better communication either orally or through the documents will avoid a lot of the disputes anyone listening from the local authority perspective to the podcast when would be the best time for a local authority to contact you and what are the key things that you problems that you can solve or that you've seen you've been solving uh for, for a local authority ideally like most things before you get into contract with, with an entity but unfortunately that opportunity you know is rarely available so there's no ideal time really so the, the, the glib answer would be before it's too late and often people don't realize when something's on the horizon until it hits them so what what often works well for people is to come in and do a bit of a health check you know get invited in by a local authority normally sort of head of service head of highways someone like that and they'll say right okay we've we've got this framework contract or we've got this you know specific project contract and can you just do us a bit of a of a health check on the behaviors of the parties and that irrelevant really whether or not the project management role is being undertaken in-house or it's through an external consultant and just look at you know compliance with the contracts obligations look at how the payment process is working out how the change control process is working out and what the sort of the tone of the correspondences and the behaviors defined cost audits is always a good one on nec i've not failed to save money on one of those yeah, often mm -hmm. often misunderstood and mismanaged by both sides, which generally results in the, the employer paying more than they should do. And the earlier, the better for those. Specifically, and narrow it down a little bit, but specifically talking about uh, an NEC 
option C, target bus contract. There's a common misconception that it's uh, it's cost plus. Contractors will exploit that. They'll fire all of their costs into it, and on the basis and the justification is is generally, well, we've incurred the cost of our supply chain, therefore it's a cost, therefore you're paying oh and plus our fee. But the reality of it is, it's not cost plus; it's defined cost plus fee, and. You know, depending on how the, the contract structure, whether it's amended or not, the cost incurred may be defined cost, but it might be included in the fee, or it might be disallowed cost. I, I know most of the areas where, where contractors will, will tuck away money there, or, mm. or, or perhaps I should say, forget to drop things out and reallocate them. I don't want to be accused of picking on contractors. Yeah, and again, it's it's about doing things the right way and increasing value for, for those local authority clients, which then releases that money to be spent doing more work, which betters everybody in, in the community. The schedule of cost components is also one that I think is misunderstood a lot. Um, yeah. People tend to revert back to a traditional pro rata prelims instead yeah. of going with a schedule of cost components, which is misunderstood. So if anyone listening wants to understand the what they're signing up for for an NEC contract, then then I think it'd be good good if they they spoke to someone like yourself, is because it can be very costly if you get it wrong, can't it? Particularly on the uh, NEC, it can. And just picking up on that, you know, in a point we talked about earlier about lawyers drafting contracts, it's not uncommon for lawyers not to understand the mechanics of NEC contracts either. To the point where I've recently been. Um, I've undertaken a couple of presentations to to legal firms explaining to their lawyers how it works in, in, in reality and what the practical applications are. Please get in touch and let's yeah. have a chat. How could, how could anyone listening, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, Rob? The best way is either to send me an email, which is yeah. enquiries at cantidad.co.uk or mm -hmm. to... Fill in the contact form on our website, which is www.cantidad.co.uk. So I always put a link from the podcast into the Construction Cashflow website. So what I'll do is I'll put the link to where they can contact you so they can listen to the podcast retrospectively. They can come back to the podcast to contact you direct. Rob, are you ready for a quick fire round? This yeah, go for motivation it. Motivation and it. inspiration. Okay. So let's go. First question, then, Rob. How do you uh, how do you start your day? So I start my day. I I'm just coming out of hibernation to a certain extent, but we'll we'll stick with with the winter, Rob. Um, I get up. I make myself and my wife a cup of coffee, drink that, and then I take the dog out for a walk for you know half an hour, have a bit of quiet contemplation listen to the radio, talk to the dog, sometimes listen to your podcasts uh, and think about the day ahead. And then I'll come back and have half an hour breakfast with the family before I start work. I generally start work about eight o'clock most days. When are you most productive? Definitely in the mornings. Yeah, I'm more of a morning person than a, than a late night person. What's something new happening in your life right now? Work-wise, I'm 
partway through my training to become a registered mediator. Mediation is, is getting quite close to becoming a, a mandated form of, of ADR and I'm quite interested and excited about the mediation um, scene. Personally, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a frustrated student of the Spanish language. I do a little bit every day. <laughs> but it's hard work. I take my hat off to anybody who can speak more than one language, especially mm, non-English non speakers who, who can speak English as well as they can, um, or, or multiple languages. I find it really difficult. But interesting at the same time. What does adventure look like to you? A new pub with some beers that I've not tried before most of the time. Uh, I'm a bit of a real ale freak. And I, I like drinking different beers. But uh, it's funny, actually. My wife and I have, have started planning World Around Cruise. We're looking at sort of doing one of these 100-day cruises. So I would definitely classify that as an adventure. What thing would you love to do that might surprise your friends and family? That's an interesting one. It might not come as a great surprise, actually, but it links back to, to one of the things I, I'm, I'm learning. I'd like to go and live in, um, in Spain for a while, um, specifically Mallorca. Fell in love with the island many years ago, and I, I absolutely love it, all aspects of it, you know, not just the, the beach resorts. Uh, I've been there lots of times on holidays and, and just I love going wandering off around the little towns and villages and I would love to have the opportunity to immerse myself in the culture for, you know, a good few weeks or months and come back a fluent Spanish speaker. <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to learn a language, isn't it, is to actually live in the country, so they say. And listen to music, apparently, yes. in that language. Name a challenge you overcame that changed your life. I've had some some real good highs and 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 some some pretty low lows as well um, professionally. But I think the most recent one was back in August September when I resigned my position from the firm I was at, which was a very secure position but I didn't feel I was happy and I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I needed to you know pull up my big boy pants and back myself and I did and it's been very successful I've got a lot of secured work booked in right up until the end of my financial year which is this you know September 23 and the prospects going forward are very, very good. You know, I didn't anticipate it picking up as much as it did, but like I say, I, I backed myself and, and went for it. What inspires you and motivates you? People who do, who deliver what they say they're going to deliver. I like people who grab hold of something and, and go for it, you know, not necessarily in a, in a gung-ho way, but they spot the vision and, you know, they, they work at it. Um, but maintain the personality, they're, they're, they're good people, um, but they're focused, organised. There's a guy that I think of in particular who started off buying shoot houses and he then set up an estate agent and then he started buying more estate agents and now he helps other people systemise their businesses because that's how he, he's built up his own success by having systems and processes in place 
and you know he, he's a big inspiration to me in the way that I look to manage and operate my business. What does success look like for you? Probably different now than it did a few years ago. Probably 20 years ago, I'd have said, yeah, big house, Porsche, blah, blah, blah. To be comfortable and content with, with my lot, to know that I've got a viable business, I'm helping people grow and develop their own careers, I'm providing value to my clients and a good service, I'm providing for my family, That's what's, and, and my football team's winning. That's success to me. What is your team? My team's Leicester, Leicester City. I've had some highs and lows over the years. Um, yeah, yeah, highs and lows, I, I get that. Uh, so finally, what advice would you give your younger self? I would say to my younger self to work harder at getting professionally qualified, then develop that and have a plan of what you wanted to do and where you wanted to go and gain some different experiences. I, I, I suppose not necessarily a great, but often I'd wanted to um, go and work overseas and experience what that might be like. And, you know, I've, I've missed some big booms, you know, sort of Hong Kong and the Middle East. There's two of them. But I didn't get professionally qualified until probably my, my 40s, by which time I'd got all the other bits and pieces. I didn't feel it appropriate to start dragging the family away. didn't want to go on my own. And just, you know, set yourself up and be recognised by your peers as, as early as you can because then, you know, that, that demonstrates to clients then that you, you know, you are capable of, um, of doing what you say you can do. Rob Hubbard, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, some real nuggets in there um, pleasure interviewing you thank you so much and i hope to have you on the podcast again sometime thank you Stu. it's uh, it's been really enjoyable chatting to you today and uh, yeah i'd love to come back if you if you were to invite me absolutely cheers rob thanks Stu. you've been listening to construction cash flow hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so so you never miss an episode and remember the faster cash flows the faster wealth grows if you enjoy this episode and you love the show please do give us your review